All right, so we are moving forward today with our series on discipleship. We took a quick little break last week to celebrate the wedding of Daryl and Julia. One week, wow, you guys are off to a good start. Made it a week. I think there's promise there. We're still dealing with the big picture at this point of discipleship. We're dealing with the big ideas. And what my plan in discipleship is to, to consider the framework, so to speak, of discipleship and then move into the particulars. Um, so often, issues in discipleship, you, you consider the particulars first, or maybe you just consider uh, the work of discipleship first, without really having a, a framework that it all fits in. And I don't know about you, but that's just kind of how my mind works. I, I want to understand the whole, and then I'll consider the parts. And so we're going to consider this week the call to discipleship. And really, Everyone is a disciple of something or someone. This is not a unique idea or necessarily a unique teaching to Christianity. We all have an inward drive to worship. And it's evident. It's evident wherever you look. John Calvin wrote this. He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. After the flood, there was a sort of rebirth of the world, but not many years passed before men were fashioning gods according to their pleasure. And the famous Puritan pastor Richard Baxter stated it this way, the most dangerous mistake that our souls are capable of is to take the creature for God and to take earth for heaven. Now, those are two Christian pastors, but as I said earlier, this is not just a Christian idea, and it's not recognized simply by Christians. Some of you may have heard of the famed author Fyodor Dostoevsky, in The Brothers Karamazov, he said this, So long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship. Psalm 115 captures it this way. The psalmist observed, Their idols, speaking of the world in contrast to the God of Israel, their idols are silver and gold the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Now it's true, in our culture, at least in America, our gods are not fashioned after stones. They're not fashioned after gold and silver necessarily. There are cultures you can go to where that's still the case. But it doesn't mean we don't have idols. Our idols have become pleasure. Our idols have become the pursuit of money or power. Our idols have become the pursuit of recreation sometimes. They've taken an immaterial form, but they're still idols nonetheless. And our culture and our hearts are full of them, even as Christians. We can struggle with this idol worship. All this, though, I'm not going to go into that necessarily, but what I wanted to point out in saying this was that we are people who were made to worship. And what happened, according to Christian theology, when the fall happened, was worship didn't cease when Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out of the garden. It simply looked elsewhere to worship. And so the call to discipleship, as far as the large framework, is going to take up our attention this week and next week. 
And it was hard for me. I told Jill while I was up in Riodoso working on this, I rearranged my material for this sermon probably four or five times on how to best go about dealing with this call. And how I arrived this morning is I'm going to look at the inner call of discipleship first. Then next week we're going to look at the outward manifestation of it. Okay, Let's get a a brief overview of the, the big picture, the discipleship plan. In history, God has always wanted a people for His own possession. Those are the words of Peter in 1 Peter 2.9. And as I just said, Christian theology holds that, that when, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, discipleship, worship didn't cease. It simply changed. Man became worshipers of the creature or the creation rather than the Creator. But the big picture is God did not leave man without a witness. God still wants man to know Him. God is still worthy of our worship, our devotion. And so He never left man without a witness. All through the Old Testament, as you read it, He raises up individuals, and then eventually He raises up a nation, Israel. And Israel was to be His own special people. They were called by His name. They were identified, Paul says in Romans, by the fact that to them God gave His law. And that law was what set them apart from every other nation in the, in the world. They were God's special people. It's always been His plan. However, uh, let me say this. I want to quote the historian, Christian historian Philip Schaeff said this about Israel. He said, This wonderful people, whose fit symbol is the burning bush, was chosen by sovereign grace to stand amidst the surrounding idolatry as the bearer of the knowledge of the only true God, of His holy law, and of His happy promises, and thus to become the cradle of the Messiah. That description of Israel is so good because it it corresponds to the church as well. Now, I don't hold the theology that the church has replaced Israel. I don't think God is done with the nation yet. But in this dispensation... Israel rejected their Messiah. Though they uniquely were given the privilege, by sovereign grace, God chose them to bear His name, His law, and they became the cradle of the very Messiah Himself. Nonetheless, second point there, Paul says in Romans eleven nineteen that they were broken off because of their unbelief. They refused to receive their own Messiah. As the Apostle John said, Jesus came to His own, yet His own didn't receive Him. And so he turned to the Gentiles, which is the third point, the church. God calling out a new people. Real quickly, you can turn with me to 1 Peter. And I want to read that short little passage, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Because it now identifies for us in this new era of the church age, who are we to be as God's people? This is the big picture. Peter says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. To what end? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So part of what I want us to grasp this morning in this big picture is the fact that God, in calling people to discipleship, is fulfilling this big picture. He's calling people out of the world. Why? To be His people. 
And we are to be His people so that we might proclaim His excellencies. Israel forfeited that, so God has set them aside for this time until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, as Paul wrote. And that is who we are to be as as the church. That is really the heartbeat of what discipleship is all about. That's the big picture end. We are to be a people who proclaim the excellencies of Christ. We are to be His light, salt to the earth. Okay, So let's get a little bit more narrow and focus in a bit with me, if you will. So the overarching call in the Gospels when Jesus showed up on the scene was this simple phrase, follow me. Now as I studied this week, I know this is not a new truth, but it came across as a new, fresh truth to me. Those two words, follow me, are so simple. And we we take it in a very individualistic sense. And in, in a way, it's true. It is an individualistic call. However, when we consider the background, the historical um, expediency of this, Jesus is embarking on the brand new era. He's calling out a people. Follow me. It's a call meant to inform, one, the individual of who Jesus is, and secondly, to persuade the individual why Jesus is worthy of our devotion and affection. So the church... Um, the church, when we give the call to follow Christ, is meant to communicate, why should we follow Christ? You're not just going to blindly follow someone when you don't know anything about Him. What reason is there to follow Christ? Well, first of all, I want us to see this invitation to follow God is everywhere in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Here's how Joshua said it. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The prophet Elijah, in contesting with the nation of Israel, who was split between two opinions, they were worshiping Baal, and they were also trying to worship God. And Elijah drew the line, and he said this to them, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, then follow Him. Jesus shows up and the Gospels record this in Matthew 4, 18-20. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea because they're fishermen. And He says to them simply, follow Me, and I will make you fishers of men. That will be our passage, by the way, next week. Immediately, Peter and Andrew left their nets and followed Him. Some of the Passages we considered last week, Matthew 16. Then Jesus told His disciples, if anyone would come after Me, let him take up his cross and follow Me. John 10.4 in the passage chapter on the great shepherd of the sheep, here's what Jesus said, the sheep hear His voice and He calls His own sheep by name. And He leads them out. When He's brought all of His own, He goes before them and the sheep follow Him for they know His voice. So that statement, follow Me, summarizes the great spiritual battle literally between the world, the kingdom of Satan, and the kingdom of God that's now coming into the world. And so this call, while it seems very simplistic, is very, very important. Because in it we must recognize God is calling us out of something and to something. It's a call to follow me. Very simply stated, 
but very profound when it's grasped. The call to follow God throughout all of history is consistent. But I want you to notice too, when Jesus shows up and says those words, follow me, I want you to understand how paramount that was. In the Old Testament, God was always this distant God. He had His prophets speaking for Him. But there's always a separation, even in the temple, right? Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was, and only then once a year. No one else was allowed in. So the people were always separated from God. It's a picture of sin, what sin has done. But when Jesus shows up, what's the, re- what's the new reality? God has now become man, and He's standing face to face with you. And He's inviting you, follow me. You see how profound that would be with these words. How much more intimate can God get than to condescend to become a man and stand in front of you and invite you to come? It's always been His invitation. Something separated us before. Now God comes to us and says, Come on, follow me. It's a profound truth when we stop and let it linger in our hearts and minds. No longer is God the distant God, the unaccessible God. He is the God who descended down to us and then invites us personally to come to Him. I love thinking about this point and this call to follow me. As we just sang... Oh, come to the altar. And by the way, I didn't know what songs Ronnie was going to sing. And Monday when we, we met here, we talked about how just the Lord interweaves the worship service and the sermon. What did God do when He came to us? He met us where we were at, right? And he invites us to come in that state. It demonstrates His mercy. It demonstrates His love. It demonstrates His care and concern for you and me. He invites us as we are. Now, he doesn't leave us as we are. That's part of what our statement of faith says. We want to meet people where they are at, but we don't want to see people stay stagnant. We want growth. We want change. So God demonstrated His righteousness. He demonstrated His anger toward the self-righteous, toward evil, toward wicked intentions. Right? He introduced in this call the kingdom of heaven. He introduced to us truth and grace in the inner man. He gave us a way to become new people. So this call to discipleship really frames what we need to consider in answering it. So to answer this call, follow me. There's two things that are converted. That's the second point on the slide there. First, our heads. And then second, our hearts. It's not either or, it's both. And it's in that order. It's very intentionally in that order. If either of these are not converted, we have yet to truly answer the call to follow Jesus. In other words, let me say it this way. If all our faith rests in is emotionalism and a zeal for God, apart from truth and knowledge, we're like the Jews were. That's what Paul said of the Jews, in fact, in Romans. I bear witness to them, he said, that they worship God, yet not according to knowledge. They're zealous but they don't know Him. If all that's converted is our heads and not our hearts, all we know is theology. And there are people full of theological truth that's true, and yet they don't know God. And our churches are full of people like that. We aren't only aiming to convert our heads or our hearts. We want both. So let's look at these. 
So the call to discipleship is to follow me, to come out of the world and become part of Christ, to learn a new way of becoming human. And the first step of that, literally the word disciple means a learner. So the first step in answering the call to discipleship is we must learn who Jesus is. It requires a head-level change. This change in thinking is the first step of repentance. In fact, that's what repentance is, is a change of mind. So to become a learner of Jesus, a true disciple in the first step, is to repent. And that's what Jesus said. Repent, come after the kingdom of God. That's what repentance is. Now, repentance works itself out in the actions, which will be next week's lesson. But you can't repent. You can't have a change of action without the change of mind first. You must become a learner of Jesus. It means that we have learned about who He is, His gospel, and we believed it. The Scripture highlights the reality that this world's thinking is not God's thinking. Turn to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 1. And we're going to understand by looking at some of these passages here why God, God's call to discipleship is to follow Him. Why it requires a separation, not only of the actions of the world, but first the thinking of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul wrote, The word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's not that the world wasn't pursuing wisdom. They do. What they think is wisdom. But they don't pursue it according to God. There must be a separation, a different way of thinking. We must become learners. Jesus said this in the Gospel of Matthew, which we'll also look at next week. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's his invitation. He also said in John chapter 6, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So in responding to the Gospel, call to follow me, we receive our, our initiation into this new reality. Reality that brings us into a new living relationship to God. We now know Him in truth. And we can follow Him in truth. Changes, uh, the change in thinking is actually the beginning of discipleship. Now it doesn't stop. I don't want you to get the impression that when we hear the Gospel and we believe it, that our thinking doesn't ever change again. That's just not the case. We grow in our understanding. We grow in our knowledge. And that will be for later studies in our series on discipleship. But there must be a change, an initial change in answering the call to follow God. Romans 12, 1 and 2, for instance, Paul said this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. And he follows it saying, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And you guys have heard this, but in case you haven't, I want to say it. That word transformed in the Greek is the Greek word metamorpho. And we get our word metamorphosis from. 
It is a transforming of the person. And what is to be transformed, according to Paul? Our thinking. We must think differently. How does that happen? We are informed from the Gospel about what is true, what's reality, who we are, who is God, all these questions. We get our answers from the Word of God. So, just as through the Gospel we're made new creatures, so also as new creatures we must learn this new way of living. We learn to operate with grace, for instance, as opposed to law. We learn to walk in faith as opposed to sight. We learn to understand and know truth as opposed to error. And we suffer for righteousness as opposed to suffering because of our sin. There's all kinds of realities that come about in our change of thinking. The Gospel defines who I am. It defines how I now relate to God and how God relates to me in Christ. And everything else embodied in those statements Christ's prayer in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. Remember that. That becomes our heart cry as well when we learn to walk in truth. No longer am I walking in my own ways for my own self, following my own will. It's not my will, but yours be done. So that's the discipline. Let's take up the third point, the posture. When we answer that call to follow Jesus, we take up the discipline of learning, but we also take up a new posture as a worshiper. Here's what Thomas Chalmers, one of my favorite old pastors, said, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world. Christ. And here's really where I want to spend the most of my time this morning, church. When the, earth, when the church issues that clarion call to follow Jesus, we've got to have something of value, of substance, to show those who we're calling. And so often, this is not the case. It's proper for those listening to our call to ask, why should I? What reasons do I have to follow Jesus? What value is there in that? And so often, people are not compelled to become disciples because our lives don't reflect the greatness of who we're calling them to follow. And this is a result, I think, because our worship is shallow. Worship begins with this. When your heart finds Christ, His Gospel, His truth, more attractive than anything else, and you live in that power and that light, then people will see that reflected in you and be compelled to follow. They'll start saying, what do you have that I don't? But we need to stop at this point as a church and say, not only do we worship corporately, I want to be a worshiper daily. I want to behold the beauty of Christ and just worship Him. I want to ask you some. I don't want you to raise your hand or answer out loud unless you want to. When was the last time in the privacy of your own life, while you're sitting at home on the couch or driving in the car or wherever, where you were just overcome with the excellency of who Christ is? When you were just overcome by God's goodness towards you and you just stopped and said, wow, thank you, Lord. That's worship. 
But that needs to happen more. So often we'll think of points and doctrine and dogmas and work to be done and this and that. What we need to do and what's most important to do if we're going to be disciple-making church is to be in love with the Lord, is to behold His beauty and His goodness. When you go to the book of Psalms and you read the Psalms, how full are they of these kind of statements? Lord, Your love is an everlasting love. It never ends. When I was down in the pit of despair, God, You didn't abandon my soul to Sheol. You read statements like this. Why? Because it's the experiences of the Christian with his God. And he's enthralled by him. He's overcome by God's faithfulness, by his truth, perhaps by his discipline. Whatever the case may be, that's where true worship resides. The church needs above all else to be fervent in their love of God. We looked at this a couple weeks ago when we inaugurated this study on discipleship and the church at Ephesus. Remember, when you read the church at Ephesus in Romans chapter, or Revelation chapter 2, by all accounts, it would be a church that you'd want your kids to be in. Man, they preached the truth. They stood for the truth. They tested false teaching and found it to be false. They avoided it. They suffered. And yet the one thing that dethroned that church is they didn't love God anymore. It's not activity. And what I want to avoid, and this is why I'm doing this study this way, is to avoid the idea that discipleship is merely activity. It's not. Discipleship at its core is creating a people for God's possession who love Him. And if we don't get that, all we're going to be doing is pragmatics. And it'll be as lifeless as the next one. What infuses a church to be true, truly transformed as a people is when that people in the privacy of their own home and then when they come together are worshipers. And they are truly worshipers of God. So that's the posture. When in faith we answer the call to follow Jesus, we take up this posture that allows transformation to happen. We've got to learn the truth. And what we learn is this. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the lead. I follow and I worship. That's my posture. True discipleship has at its core love and adoration for Jesus. Here's what the old Saint Augustine said. The heart is restless till it finds rest in Christ. So this is truly the impulse that compels us to follow the Lord. We're first, we first are converted in our thinking, but this conversion must also move south from our head to our hearts. And so often that 12 inches is the longest road to travel. Truth can get lodged in our brain and get stuck there. If it never makes its way to penetrate our heart, we'll be no better for it. In fact, we'll be the worse. Jesus said it this way, it would have been better for you to not have known these things than to have known them and not obeyed it. So we're the worse if it never transforms us into becoming worshipers. Many people intellectually embrace the truths of Christianity. They see that it's just a superior moral system or what have you. But they never bow the knee in worship. They fail to tear down the idols of their own hearts 
and prop up the Lord, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3, sanctify the Lord in your hearts. They fail to do that. I want to go to an Old Testament passage that'll give us a picture of what has to happen to become a worshiper. Okay, Go to the book of Judges, and Casey, it's funny you were talking to me about Judges today. Before we started, go to the book of Judges chapter 6. And this really is uh, in, in every, um, not in every book, but in many passages in the Old Testament, we see this similar action having to take place in the nation of Israel. So you remember the land that God was giving Israel was a land that was inhabited by many different people groups, and they worshipped many different gods. Some of the gods would require that they would sacrifice their own children on the altar to them. Demonic, devilish worship. And so God tells Israel, when you go into the land, you are to tear down the altars and get rid of them. You are to cleanse it. We're going to look at Gideon's command. And I want you to pay attention to how this unfolds. Beginning in uh, chapter 6, this is Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. And we'll pick it up and go through 31. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them back on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the asher that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the asher beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. I love these accounts because it provides a picture of me of what we must do in our hearts. We started this sermon talking about every single one of us has idols of the heart. And just as God told Gideon, hey, Gideon, 
I want you to become a worshiper of me first. And then the result, what did Gideon do? Then he went and tore down the altars of Baal and Asherah. So often what we try to do, and we make no progress in our life over sin, over those idols of our heart that, that are strongholds in our life, we don't make progress against sin because first we're trying to tear down the idols without becoming a worshiper. You see the problem? We want to tear out these, these sins in our life, but we have yet to stop and humble ourselves and simply worship God. The order in this account is so important. This is why I chose it. Gideon had a face-to-face encounter with God and he worshiped Him first. Because of that, it was no problem for Gideon to tear down those altars. Why? Because he saw the beauty and value of the Lord. That's why. Our idols may not be Baal and Asherah, but it might be strongholds of pornography, to pride, to money, to anger, to jealousy. You'll never overcome those sins until you first worship God in His beauty. And when you behold, for instance, God's forgiveness towards you, and all your many sins, it won't be difficult for you to forgive others and let your hatred go. You see what I'm saying? When you have a problem with lust, it won't be difficult for you to overcome lust when you're satisfied with Christ. You've got to behold the Lord first and become a worshiper, and then those idols will come tearing down. And that's troop transformation right there. That's the process of discipleship. That's how we progress in faith. So it's so important. In the worship of God, the soul ascribes ultimate worth and value to God as opposed to any other thing that would challenge that status. And church, we're not immune from being challenged in our hearts. As Christians, things will tempt you to draw your affection and devotion to it. That's why John the Apostle in his epistle wrote this, Children, keep yourselves free from idols. That's what he meant. Former relationships, material goods, lusts and pleasures of the flesh, even our very life, as we saw last week, all these challenge the throne of our heart for its devotion and worship. Here's one that's hard to bear, but we hear it all the time. In missions, this is a way that idolatry, I think, has crept into missionology, missiology. We don't want to go anywhere that might cost us our lives. That's too dangerous. What is that exposing? We still hold dear our life, right? Those are ways we can be challenged. It's through maintaining the posture of worship that the soul finds its highest fulfillment as well as its path to victory over every other idol. So discipleship is not simply about activity. It's not about outward action or about ascribing to and holding to certain principles. Those are all true, and those will follow. But discipleship begins as a posture of worship in the heart, where you behold the beauty of the Lord and you simply rest in that Augustine's quote, the heart is restless till it rests in Christ. He knew what he was talking about. He was a man full of all kinds of sin before he came to faith. If you've ever done any reading on that saint, he'd visit prostitutes constantly. He lived an extremely sinful, lustful life. 
And it wasn't until he came to faith and all that was done that he found his freedom. Jesus said this in John chapter 4, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Why? Because the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That scripture captures what we've just established. Jesus coming to the world, identifying Himself, revealing the glory of the Father so much so that He said, if you've seen Me, you've seen Him. Demonstrating the true character and nature of God, merciful, gracious, true, loving, forgiving. People saw that. And He says, I want people who will worship Me. Understanding this. I think the best example is Mary Magdalene. A woman, one of the Gospel writers said, who was full of seven demons that the Lord cast out of her. And it's interesting, when you go read all four Gospels, some of the Gospels overlap in who they say was at the tomb, but you know what? There's only one name mentioned in every single one of them, and it's hers. It's as if each Gospel writer said, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene was there. And I want to summarize Mary Magdalene's devotion. It's especially strong. So strong, in fact, that she was at the cross with Jesus until He took His final breath when most of His disciples had fled. So strong, in fact, that she beat the males to the tomb. She, with a handful of other women, were the first to be there. So strong was her devotion that she cried much when the body was missing. So strong, in fact, that when Jesus revealed Himself to her and she thought He was the gardener, she clung to Him, didn't want to let Him go. But so strong, in fact, that Jesus gave her the privilege, and get this, of being the very first human to announce the Lord is risen. She's the first person to ever utter those words. She went and told the disciples. Peter and John ran to the tomb and confirmed it, though they didn't believe it. I love this account. Why was her devotion so strong? It's because, as Jesus said, she'd been forgiven much. She loved much. That's it. When we know the depths of what God has done for us and the beauty that He presents in Himself to us as sufficient for every need, every sin, every weakness of ours, we love Him. When we refuse to see our need, our weaknesses, all those things, we don't really value Christ that much. To sum it up, I want you to think on these three questions. One, what does this tell us about the Lord? It tells us a whole lot. In fact, I can't summarize all that it tells us. We learn that God has a purpose and a plan that spans all of history. That He's actively achieving that plan and He's working His will and plan still today in the simple call of follow me. Moreover, we see that God alone can satisfy our longing to worship. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from Himself because it's not there. That doesn't exist. Only coming into this new relationship with God in discipleship do we find purpose, peace, joy. Every other God that we pursue, thinking that it can give us those things, will leave us hopeless, helpless, destitute. Depressed. What does it tell us about us? Well, it tells us that we as a people are created to worship. 
and that we will not be satisfied until we find that worship fulfilled in Christ. That's what discipleship is about. We are disciples right now of something or someone. We all have our affection, our energy, our passion given to something. That's our object of worship, whatever it is. We also learn that His call to follow Jesus tells us that we are part of His plan. That He wants us to be part of that plan. We continue as a church to put out the call to people to follow Christ. We continue to be a light in this dark world, calling and inviting others to come to the Savior, to the kingdom of God, and be a part of it. To align ourselves with Him and His purposes. If the people we serve and come into contact with are not deeply impressed with Christ and the Gospel we profess, then the gods that they serve will leave them in ruin. They will live lifeless and ultimately worthless lives, lacking any true transformation. Third, what does it tell us about the Gospel? Well, the Gospel invitation to become a disciple begins with learning who Jesus is, believing it, and then finding a principle and posture of worship because of it. The Gospel invitation, as we saw last time we talked about this, is to forsake all other gods and to follow Him. But as we also talked about, when we love God more than mother, father, son, daughter, brother, sister, and we truly worship God, that's when all the other relationships in our lives are truly fulfilled. They're not lost. That's when they're fulfilled. The Gospel gives us all the motivation we need. In it is the offering of free pardon for our iniquity. In it we see the unending love of God and that He sent His Son as a substitute to pay the penalty for my sin. And if that doesn't cause worship, then you're not a disciple. Yet, the invitation still stands for you. I wanted to read a quote. And I brought the book because it's lengthy. It's a page. I was reading this week up there... um, I've told you guys I've been trying to study church history so I know it better. And this is Philip Schaeff's history of the church. And he just says it so well. Bringing this back to the big picture of what discipleship is about, I want you to listen to him. He says, The central current and ultimate aim of universal history is the kingdom of God established by Jesus Christ. This is the grandest and most comprehensive institution in the world, as vast as humanity and as enduring as eternity. All other institutions are made subservient to it, and in its interest the whole world is governed. It is no afterthought of God, no subsequent emendation of the plan of creation. It is the eternal forethought, the controlling idea, the beginning, the middle, and the end of all of His ways and all of His works. The first Adam is a type of the second Adam. Creation looks to redemption as the solution of its problems. Secular history, far from controlling sacred history, is controlled by it. It must directly or indirectly serve the kingdom's ends and can only be fully understood in the central light of Christian truth and the plan of salvation. The Father who directs the history of the world draws all to the Son who then rules the history of the church and the Son leads back to the Father so that God may be all and in all. All things 
Paul said, were created through Christ and for Christ. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in all things Christ may be preeminent. That's Colossians 1. John von Mueller says this concerning the Gospel. He says, The Gospel is the fulfillment of all hopes, the perfection of all philosophy, the interpreter of all revolutions, the key of all seeming contradictions in the physical and moral worlds. It is life. It is immortality. And then Schaeff summarizes, the history of the church is the rise and progress of the kingdom of heaven upon earth for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. That's the big picture idea of the call to discipleship is to be a part of that. Now we're going to move from here looking at the pragmatics and then the particulars. But if we can't get the big picture of why are, we, why are we even worshiping? What is it about? That's what it's about. And it's full of joy. It's full of purpose. And the invitation is for you to be a part of it. So with that, I'll invite Ronnie back up. and We'll close the service. I'll close us in prayer. If you would pray with me. Father God, we just want to stop and thank You. Father, we want to stop and thank You that You and Your grace have invited us to be part of Your kingdom. To be workers, disciples, learners, worshipers in it. Father, that heaven might be seen on earth, that grace might be tasted, that lives would be pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light that through the church you would be making your name, your gospel known, and you'd be using us to do it. But Father, all of that is infused with power, with effectiveness, when the church simply stands in worship to you. Let our hearts, Lord, move our hearts to be raptured with your grace. As Paul said to the Corinthians, Woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And the love of Christ is what constrains me to do it. It controls me because Christ has laid hold of me. Father, may that tune, may that song of the unending forgiveness, the unending love of God fill our hearts constantly. May it be the motivation for all that we do. Father, for those who are here who might simply have learned of Christ and yet not become worshipers, or who have jumped into this thing of Christianity with emotionalism and yet don't know God in truth yet, Father, I pray You call them to see the error of their way and bring both into harmony. Father, may they become a worshiper in truth because You are seeking such to worship Him. Father, I pray many who may be on the fence might see the value of Christ because nowhere else can they find forgiveness for their sins. Nowhere else can they find mercy. Nowhere else can they find a God who not only takes their sin away from them, but gives them life in their place. Nowhere else, Father, can they find escape from death. And nowhere else, Father, can they find a future and a hope that's eternal. Father, I pray through our lives in worship, through the message we preach, that we are persuasive in calling many to follow the Lord. That our lives would reflect all of His greatness 
so that people might see it and be drawn to you. That's discipleship. That's the call. Father, help us be full of worship now as we end, as you've called us to follow you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.